You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to this week's BMJ podcast. This week on BMJ.com, we've published some research looking at the link between IQ and attempted suicide. I'll be talking to David Batty, one of the researchers on that project, about his findings. And we found a stepwise association. So in other words, for each incremental increase in IQ, there was a proportional decrease in the risk of suicide. Also this week, the BMJ has launched its continuing medical education uh, in conjunction with the Cleveland Clinic. We'll be speaking to them to find out a little bit more about the process and uh, what the Cleveland Clinic itself does. Any doctor globally can claim credit. Um, there's, uh, they'll be receiving AMA PRA Category 1 credit, which uh, there's reciprocity in, in most nations for that credit. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, we had some research that was looking at the legacy of big sporting events like the Olympic Games. Now, that research found that there was no good evidence to support claims that games have a lasting impact on the health of a nation. And this week, we are talking to Richard Budgett, who's the Chief Medical Officer for the 2012 Olympic Games in London. And we put some of those questions to him. Regenerating East London um, is a fantastic health benefit because of the statistic of the reducing life expectancy as you travel east. But before all that, I'm joined by Rich Hurley, who's here with the news. Hi, Rich. Hi there, Duncan. So, what have we got this week? First of all, I wanted to go back to the, uh, the Tamiflu story, back to swine flu. Uh, the BMJ has just done an, an investigation in collaboration with the um, Bureau for Investigative Journalism, suggesting that uh, there were WHO scientists who were planning the N1H1 pandemic uh, who had uh, some connections to Big Pharma that they hadn't declared. Yep, and we've got a video about that that tells the whole story that's going up on bmj.com as well. So, have you got anything else for us? Well, there's an interesting story in the news this week that the uh, National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE, has issued guidance on the the worrying levels of alcohol consumption in England and Wales. So yet another agency weighing in. Yeah, it's more of the same. They say that the government should consider raising the price of alcohol and banning advertising, um, and this is all um, evidence-based guidance. Okay, well, new government, and we'll see if that one actually gets picked up this time. Well, yeah, we'll see. Um, The Conservative Liberal Coalition said in the Queen's speech that they would ban sales of alcohol below actual cost, but uh, they didn't go any further than that. Um, There have been calls like Liam Donaldson, the Chief Medical Officer for England, called last year for a minimum price of 50p per unit. And uh, what else do you have for us? Well, I was glad to see uh, this week that the, the gay Malawian couple who'd been imprisoned for sodomy and indecency a couple of weeks ago Um, have been released. They'd been sentenced to uh, the maximum sentence of 14 years in prison and the judge had said that he wanted to make an example of them. But the president has grudgingly grudgingly pardoned them on humanitarian grounds. Yeah, it was after pressure was applied from from different countries. That's right. Uh, Barack Obama um, and other heads of state from around the world and um, and also um, from aid organisations. Uh, for example, the, the Global Fund had been putting pressure on Malawi um, to be lenient on these uh, men. So this wasn't just humanitarian grounds for the people. There's been worries about what policies like this could mean for HIV prevention 
Yes, that's right. Moves to drive homosexuality even further underground. I mean, it's already illegal in at least 30 African countries and there's widespread homophobia. Um, moves to push homosexuality further underground can hamper efforts to educate people who are at risk of HIV and also to identify and treat those people who already have the virus. Um, Bob Raw wrote a very interesting article on this topic um, for us a couple of weeks ago and you can read it on bmj.com. And we also um, held a poll asking whether you think that homophobia fuels Africa's HIV epidemic and I think the vote was pretty split the last time I looked. Okay. And uh, finally, you've got some information about uh, BMJ's multimedia efforts. That's right. I'm, I'm very pleased uh, that uh, we finally launched our iPhone app um, for Student BMJ, uh, which is a monthly um, magazine and um, website for medical students and junior doctors. And that went live a couple of days ago. We've already had 1,400 downloads from all over the world. Okay, so what uh, kind of information? What's in this app? You can get all sorts there. Um, It uh, includes all the latest articles uh, that we publish. And also you can uh, view BMJ blogs and podcasts like this one. And uh, you can also see live um, events for students. Okay, and that's uh, available for free in the Apple Store. That's right. You can download it for free. And please let us know what you think. Thanks, Rich. And you can read all those articles and more online on bmj.com. I'm joined on the phone by David Batty. He's a Wellcome Trust Fellow, working currently at the Medical Research Council in the University of Glasgow, also with an appointment at the University of Edinburgh. Now, he and his colleagues have published online this week on bmj.com a study entitled Psychosis Alters the Association Between IQ and Future Risk of Attempted Suicide. Now, David... One of the first things you say in your paper is that there's emerging evidence of the link between IQ and attempted suicide. Could you take us through that a bit? Sure. Some colleagues in Bristol a while back, David Gunnell and his team, found an association between IQ and suicide mortality, that is to say completed suicide. Mm -hmm. They found that individuals with higher IQ scores had a lower risk of subsequent suicide death. We think, we think that the predictors and consequences of attempted suicide are probably very different from completed suicide, in other words, suicide death. So we thought it worthwhile to also examine that association between IQ and attempted suicide. Where was David Gunnell's research base? Was that in Sweden it was, as well? It was actually the same cohort, but in this cohort they looked at mortality from suicide rather than hospital admissions for suicide. Now, did you choose Sweden because of its high suicide rate or was it to do with the the cohort uh, data available? Well, I spent some time in Scandinavia, worked for a year in Denmark, and it it became pretty clear to me then that in the Scandinavian countries, if you want to conduct research, what you first think about is how you can link the various databases they have together rather than going out and collecting new data. Mm -hmm. The issue in the Scandinavian countries, of course, is that they all have an ID number, and that facilitates linkage between a whole range of data sets that are routinely collected, like education, like IQ, mortality experience, hospital admissions. Mm -hmm. And so it was really a data-driven decision. We knew these 
data were potentially available in Sweden and it just seemed an ideal opportunity. I should add that most of the studies, and there are very few looking at IQ and attempted suicide, have been very small in scale and haven't been able, as we were, to look at the association between IQ and different causes of uh, attempted suicide, poisonings and hangings and so on. Okay. Well, shall we go into that a bit now, into your sure. research? You took this, this cohort from Sweden and yes. you examined them. What were you looking for? How did you do that? Okay, so in Sweden, in, in the past as today, there, are, there is a conscription um, examination for all men. And that medical examination not only includes measurement of health, like blood pressure and uh, any existing physical and psychiatric illness, but it also includes an IQ test. Now, if you take those, the results from those tests, you can then link it in a population-wide sample of all men. This is just men because it's only conscription is limited to men in Sweden. You can link those IQ scores to subsequent hospital admissions. So this is a million men. Over a 20 year, uh, born over a 20 year period, who were then followed up for around 25 years. And in those, a million men, there are about 18,000 admissions. Now, 18,000 admissions is actually greater than all the other cohorts. Okay. So, once you examined the data, what did you find about the link? Well, we found an association between IQ and hospital admissions such that higher IQ score in men had a much lower risk of hospitalization for suicide in the future. Now, what was particularly interesting about that result were two things. First, the association was present almost irrespective of the cause of the attempted suicide, hanging, poisonings, etc. But also, and interestingly, it was seen across the full IQ range. So this isn't a clinical sample. This is a general population sample of just about every man in Sweden born between certain birth years. And we found a stepwise association. So in other words, for each incremental increase in IQ, there was a proportional decrease in the risk of suicide. It just wasn't seen just above and below average intelligence, for instance. Okay. Now, in any studies that are looking at IQ, there are you know problems with things like each generation's IQ is being measured as being higher. Uh, I believe it's called yes. the Flynn effect. Yeah. So yeah. overall, does the, a population who's born later, are they more likely to, to attempt suicide than a, a, a population born earlier? No, it, we, we, we see the same IQ suicide risk in a population born more recently compared to one born in the past. I mean, in that, how is IQ affecting their suicide risk? Is it acting as a a proxy for other socioeconomic factors, you know, someone's ability to to have a, a high income might be affected mm-hmm, by IQ, or, or or is it just something native to IQ? Yeah, it's it, it's a key question, and it's one that we were able to test. So there there are at least probably four possibilities here for what is driving this apparent protective effect of high IQ on later suicide. One is that individuals in we know individuals who have higher iq scores generally are from backgrounds that are socioeconomically affluent and so they don't suffer adversity so maybe they don't therefore experience you know the, the trials and tribulations of life in people in the way that people in the higher socioeconomic groups do 
Now, we were able in this cohort, which is very well characterized for socioeconomic status, we've got information on the parents and we've got information like education and occupation on the offspring. And we were able to take these factors into account and the gradients I've just described to you held. So, in other words, the association between higher IQ scores and later risk of suicide was essentially unaffected. So it didn't seem that it was affected by socioeconomic status. We were also take, able to take into account the possible explanatory f effect of binge drinking and smoking. For instance, we know binge drinking and smoking can precipitate suicidal thoughts and you know, a lot of um, suicides are associated with heavy alcohol consumption. And we were able in a, in a, group of, a subgroup of men within this cohort to, to look at those as explanatory factors. And again, it didn't seem to affect the results. We know, we know that higher IQ scoring individuals have greater verbal skills and that because one of the ways we measure IQ is through verbal ability. And it might be that those individuals can better describe either, either to people within their support structure or to health professionals what they're actually going through. They, they in a sense, have a greater vocabulary and can um, more clearly detail the experiences they're having. So that's number one. A second explanation, and probably the most likely and one that was advanced by David Gunnell and his colleagues at Bristol and, and us, is that individuals with higher IQ have greater problem-solving skills. Again, that is one of the central tenets of testing IQ. And it may be that an individual faced with certain trials and tribulations in life can come up with solutions to deal with those situations which doesn't involve self-harm or suicidal thoughts. Now it's over to David Payne, editor of BMJ.com, who's talking to the Cleveland Clinic about continuing medical education. Well, if you've been on the BMJ website recently or read the journal, you'll know that we've launched a CME um, exercise with uh, our partners at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. And with me today, I've got Stephen Kchuk, who's Associate Director for the Centre for Continuing Education at the Cleveland Clinic. Hello, Stephen. Hello, David. And um, thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you here. And could you explain a little bit about the CME uh, offering that we've got at the BMJ at the moment? Sure. So uh, first, I wanted to explain Cleveland Clinic and kind of who we are. Uh, we're a large multidisciplinary uh, center. Uh, we have uh, specialists in, in, in every major specialty, about 2,000 physicians on staff. And we're a leading academic medical center-based CME provider. So we do uh, education really globally. Um, and we've partnered with BMJ to really bring knowledge to the healthcare community. And so uh, learners who will, will access BMJ um, research articles, uh, they'll go through a simple process to register uh, via BMJ Learning. Uh, and once they've read the article, they'll uh, take a short quiz with five questions. And once they're done, they'll go through a seamless journey to the Cleveland Clinic CME website, where they'll be able to claim credit, complete an evaluation form, and retain a, a permanent transcript with Cleveland Clinic. Great. And I think the idea is that we have about 50 articles a year that has CME points attached to it. Is that correct? That's correct. We're roughly, we'll be releasing about one a week. Right. Okay. The fact that you're a US-based organization, does that preclude doctors from other parts of the world um, doing the modules? You know, what's in it for them? Uh, 
No, uh, any doctor globally can claim credit. Um, there's, uh, they'll be receiving AMA PRA Category 1 credit, which uh, there's reciprocity in, in most nations for that credit. Uh, it, it's kind of like a stamp of integrity that this, this education has met um, some rigorous standards in being produced. Now, you're obviously an expert on CME. Could you tell us a little bit about how you've seen it evolve over the last few years? Sure. Really, there's been a, a, a migration from uh, kind of classroom-based learning, to the didactic lectures, to really individualized learning, to where uh, physicians uh, and, uh, and really other healthcare providers are encouraged to uh, create an individualized learning plan according to their own needs, so they could uh, get get CME from journal reading, from uh, searching and learning, uh, using uh, databases to answer their clinical questions, uh, as well as the traditional live courses. Right. How, how do you feel that CME will develop over the next few years? Well, I think CME is going to be brought as close to the point of care as possible. So whatever can make that physician-patient encounter better, I think CME will be there. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion, at least in the United States, about maintenance of certification. And so as uh, different specialties want, want physicians to maintain certain abilities, uh, I think CME will be there. Right. Now, before I met you, Stephen, I was looking at a paper you published in Academic Medicine in January of this year. Um, it's a subject I think is close to lots of doctors' hearts, which is this idea or this suspicion sometimes that if there's you know, commercial involvement in a CME module, that it's somehow, there's this perception of bias. And you, I believe, did a study um, to, to find out, you know, how, you know, what the reality is out there in terms of how those um, modules are perceived. Could you tell us a little bit about the research you did? So uh, the, the topic is, is hotly debated, as, as I'm sure many, many uh, out in the audience know. And so we wanted to take a look at, at our own program and, and evaluate whether or not the presence of commercial support. So anytime a pharmaceutical or device maker gave an educational grant to us to produce education, um, did that uh, introduce more or higher degree of perceived bias among our learner group? So we're, we're a large program, and we evaluated uh, a little over 350 of our activities. And uh, we certify some that have no commercial support, some that have support from many uh, commercial uh, companies, and uh, some that are produced from a, sing a grant from a single entity. And so we looked at all of our um, uh, evaluation data, and we, we uh, ran some tests to see if there was any statistical significance in the correlation. Uh, and interestingly, uh, there wasn't. Our hypothesis originally was that, well, if there was commercial support present, chances are that that bias would be uh, at a higher perception. Uh, and we actually found that uh, the inverse was true. Very low levels of bias is really the, the, the final conclusion there. That's great, Stephen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to find out more about the BMJ CME, you can go and read an editorial that was published online recently in the print journal. Um, there's also two um, sections on the website uh, for authors and for readers. And obviously, if you want to complete the modules, go to a research paper that has it and um, read the terms and conditions before you undertake the CME. And obviously, then the research paper and then fill in the questions. And uh, hopefully, it'll all be good from there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Stephen. Thank you, David. Bye-bye. And the first research paper to include continuing medical education is now available online on bmj.com. And you can expect to see more of those in the future. Now, the BMJ has published some research looking at the legacy of large sporting events. Now, that research found that there was perhaps some evidence for a continuing economic legacy, but there wasn't any good evidence for a continuing health benefit for the host population. This week, Rebecca Coombs visited Richard Budget, who's the Chief Medical Officer for the 2012 Olympic Games, to ask him some questions about the Olympic Games and the medicine behind it. So, Rebecca, when you had your chat, what did you ask him? 
Well, for a start, I asked him, does he think these games will have a good, meaningful legacy? Well, it, it, it already is, um, in that I think part of the inspiration for the two million more people taking exercise, you know, one million through NHS or Department of Health and one million through um, uh, Sport England, um, is really has come about because we, we won the bid. Um, and so, you know, that, that is a government commitment which hopefully will be carried through. So we have two million more people exercising regularly um, by 2012. That would be a fantastic legacy. Yeah. And then, of course, to keep those people exercising, <laughs> we have that new speciality, which is sport and exercise medicine. Um, and uh, that's, I think, really important to uh, uh, use exercise as a therapeutic tool and to make sure that people who do start exercising, because encourage them to, um, can keep doing it. Um, and uh, and that will have long-term health benefits. So he thinks there is going to be a legacy. But then I put to him the question raised by the BMJ research. How can you prove that the games themselves will make any difference to the health of the nation? I think it is extremely challenging to uh, determine what's causative. So uh, we can look qualitatively at the inspirational effect of the games, uh, the catalytic effect of the games on any programmes, but to actually determine how uh, crucial that was or what, what percentage of the effect was due to a game's effect, I think is, um, is a judgment as much as a science. Um, uh, most commentators would agree, and when you look at that paper, it was difficult, wasn't it? Because the, the, they could show, I think we'll, you could probably show economic benefit, which will have knock-on health benefit, um, but to directly show that the inspirational effect of the games gets more people exercising is a, is a hard thing to do. So then I put to him the question of whether we can justify the £9.3 billion bill for the Olympic Games, which is £150 for every man, woman and child in the UK. The other voice you can hear is Pam Venning, who is the Medical Services Manager of the London Organising Committee of the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. But the actual hosting of the games, the, 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 the Pam do, and I do, it doesn't cost the country anything at all. No, sure. We're raising that money uh, privately. So, and um, it's not my field at all, but um, as, we, as we keep hearing, the, uh, you know, most of the other cost is um, left there in legacy because it's all part of regeneration, which is going to have health then as well. Re- regenerating East London um, is a fantastic health benefit because of the statistic of the reducing life expectancy as you travel east, um, and we, uh, we can be part of reversing that. So it's a... Uh, uh, a worthwhile um, investment and it's really the Olympics is yes, springboard yeah, it's and it's brought forward that investment was going to happen anyway with the Thames Gateway So then I wanted to ask him about the medical aspects of the Games themselves One aspect of the Games that will come under Richard's remit is testing athletes for performance enhancing drugs I asked Richard what he thought the biggest challenges of this Games would be I think the current challenges within anti-doping will be similar in 2012 so it's erythropoietin and autologous blood and blood doping and the anabolic agents are the, are the big challenges. The, the testing is getting more and more sensitive, and as you may know, um, the first growth hormone um, positive was uh, detected at the King's Laboratory here in the UK. Uh, you know, for years, growth hormone has been a real problem in that it's difficult to detect, um, but we're winning that one. Um, the other really important development is the athlete passport. The, there is a study going on to uh, look at 
which parameters should be followed in an athlete passport. So the idea is that regularly at two, three monthly intervals, um, blood and urine is taken from the athlete and then you, uh, you can get a tighter and tighter margin of what is normal for that individual. We want to have as clean a games as possible and we can do that by making sure the athletes know there is going to be really comprehensive testing both before the games in the weeks leading up to the games and at the games themselves um, and we're going to have more um, tests than ever in any games before around 5,000 tests And you've written up more of your interview with Richard in a feature that's in the BMJ this week well, I, I put to, to Richard the fact that uh, many public experts, health experts, have said that it's hard to reconcile the fact that McDonald's and Coca-Cola are the leading sponsors of the uh, International Olympic Committee. Budget seemed quite sanguine about this, really, and he said it's up to personal choice and some people do eat McDonald's and that's fine as long as you do it in moderation. Thanks, Rebecca. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back with some more stories from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.